You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. church. It is such a privilege and a blessing to be with you here this morning. Um, you'll have to excuse my voice a little bit. I have uh, was in bed since Wednesday and uh, yes, I was able to, the Lord got me up this morning. Can I just start by saying we're all a mess? No one's arrived. Is that, is that a big amen? And so as I preach, I don't preach as somebody who's arrived. I'm a recovering hypocrite. I struggle with what I teach but God has been faithful to me. He's allowed me in the, in the midst of all of uh, the things that I've, I've struggled with to allow me to be here today. I should be in South Africa, actually, but uh, through COVID, uh, my wife and I had sold everything um, and over uh, since 2009 started some ministries in South Africa, and yet the Lord turned everything around. We're in the, also the process of adopting a little baby uh, from Bracebridge, and she's now five, and so through COVID and the delay of adopting the baby, we ended up by staying. So we're starting from scratch. This is the seventh time my wife and I have started from scratch. I have no house, no pension, no savings, no retirement, but no problems because I'm in the sphere of God's will. And that's what's important. So we're going to do it African style this morning. I don't have a PowerPoint. Um, we're just going to open God's word and preach God's word. So let's just pray. Lord, we come to you as broken people. Father, we need your help. We're a mess, and so we ask you to come into us and give us wisdom this morning. Uh, may people only hear your word. May you guide us. May you help us. May we see this beautiful passage that Christ came for us, and now may we strive together. And We ask you now in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, open in your Bibles to uh, Philippians uh, chapter 1. Uh, we'll read from uh, verse 27. And just as you're turning there, and then we'll go to chapter 218. Question, how prepared are we to make life not about us? That's tough. We live in a culture here that life is all about us. It's what we can get. It's about me. It's the individualistic culture. And yet when Paul wrote, he wrote to a group of people who was trying to teach them something about, interesting enough, and hear the word, how to be servants but leaders. Now hear me when I say that. Servants, but leaders. Servant leadership um, is a very interesting concept in our day and age because most of us believe that leadership is that I'm in charge, I'm number one, and you do as I say, and often not as I do. In the Bible, that's totally different. The word servant means to come up under somebody else's authority. But believe it or not, leader actually means to influence by modeling and being an example. Isn't that interesting? Being a leader means to model an example of what it means to serve. That's simply all that servant leadership is. And we find this beautifully because when Paul wrote to this church in Philippi, and he probably started this church, he had an incredible servant leadership heart, and people there had servant leadership hearts as well. And he um, was one who sacrificially gave. And it's interesting, they sacrificially gave. If, and I would encourage you to read Philippians through every week three or four times, because you'll start to see the unity. The book actually um, ends with Epaphroditus and a report that he gave, gave to Paul sacrificially from the church 
and out of poverty, a gift. And in fact, Paul, I think, quotes this in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 5. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, which included Philippi. So even though Philippi was a rich Roman colony, the church actually had a great poverty and affliction. For in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in wealthy generosity on their part. And they gave beyond their means. Well, that's important because what we'll learn today is a gospel-centered life is actually a sacrificial servant, suffering servant. The gospel life is focused on a sacrificially suffering servant leader who has an attitude of joy. We're miserable people, if you think of it. We often will talk about, I've given so much. How's your week? It's good in the Lord, but I've suffered. We're very, we are. I'm a whiner. I know, I can sulk. And yet the Lord comes along and tells me not to be. He tells me to have an attitude of joy and to be a sacrificial servant leader. So do we see that in the passage? Do we see that we need to have a gospel-centered life that sacrificially suffers as a servant leader but with an attitude of joy? Let's read from verse chapter 1, verse uh, 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything uh, by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that is from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now that I still have. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord with one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility of mind, count others more significant than yourself. Each one of you look not only unto his own interests, but also into the interests of others, having the same mind among yourself that is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord to the glory of the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to, to will and to work for his good pleasure. So do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, 
who without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among you, you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud and do not run in vain or labor in vain. For even if I am being poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, (laughs) this took about 50 hours to prepare, and I could do probably six or seven lessons, but I'm not, because i got 40 minutes or less. So we're going to answer three critical questions that you and I, both of us, need to answer. The first is, what are the characteristics of a servant leader? The second, who was and is the ultimate servant leader? And then finally, how do I become a servant leader? We'll take it home there. How do I become a servant leader? What are the characteristics of a servant leader? Who and was the ultimate servant leader? And how do I become a servant leader? So let's look at the first point. What are the characteristics of a servant leader? Well, believe it or not, do you know that God created you and me to serve? That is worship. We had beautiful worship, theology, and song this morning. But did you realize Genesis 2.15, when God had created man, he actually said, you will worship and serve me. And he put him in the garden to worship and to serve, to work. Our work is our worship and our service. We don't work till the weekend. We are designed to work and to worship the Lord and to serve him. That's critical to understand. And so we see six characteristics here in this, in this first part of the passage of how do I become a servant and a servant leader. The first is unity. You'll notice again and again that he brings up, like in Philippians 1, he says they are saints. And he says in Philippians 4.18, I was well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice uh, to God, and he talks plur- in a plurality. It wasn't just one person's gift, it was all of their gifts. In unity, we spend, isn't it interesting, we always have money for what's important. And there's a unity there, because together they realized out of poverty they need to give. There was also unity in a specific partnership. He says in 1 verse 5, that your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And in verse 7 he says, for uh, in chapter 1 verse 7, for you are partakers with me of the grace of God. In chapter 2 verse 2, he says, be of the same mind, the same love, being full of accord with one mind. Again we see unity. But unity is not uniformity. It's coming together with a single purpose, and that's key. That is so difficult in our individualistic world, isn't it? I mean, you may even be here saying, what, this is a lot of hogwash. Are you kidding me? Unity? It's about me. Yeah, believe it or not, it's not. In COVID, there was 2.74 million divorces. People say, oh, it's because of COVID. No, people had to live together. We don't do well at that. We want our individualism. Otherwise, we wouldn't have so many smartphones. It's about promoting me, not unity. But unity is critical if you're to be a servant and a servant leader. Second, it's teachability, to be teachable. Notice that Jesus said we we make disciples. The word disciple simply means a learner or a follower who is teachable. And the early church got this. In Acts chapter 2, it says they devoted themselves, they had a steadfast single-mindedness, 
and engaged in the persistency of the teaching of the apostles. And they had fellowship together. No one considered anything their own, but they gave. In, Philippia, in, in, in Acts 4.32, says the same thing. They were full in number, and those who came together were with one heart, one soul. No one said that anything belonged to itself, but it had everything in common, and with great power they listened to the apostles and the testimony of the resurrection of Christ. And so being teachable, and that's our number one problem, I think. We're actually not teachable. We like to set the agenda, but we're actually not teachable. And we need to become teachable. And it's interesting, how are we teachable? Well, nobody wants to know that somebody's smart. They want to know that they are teachable because they've come up under the teaching of God's word. The third characteristic is conviction. Conviction. Notice in chapter 127, you stood firm in one spirit. That word stand firm is actually the perfect tense of the word to stand. It is an inner immovability, a consistent firm commitment of belief and conviction no matter what the external pressure is. That's key, a conviction to stand firm. So it doesn't matter what's happening around me. Because I want unity and I want to be teachable, it's what God wants to do in me, therefore I'll stand. Do you realize spiritual warfare in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse uh, 10 to verse 18, it talks about standing three times. It's a defensive term. We stand. Interesting, we live in a culture that will stand for its rights, don't we? We don't live in a culture that will stand together because it's willing to suffer. And standing firm... And then he uses another word in verse 27, striving, striving side by side. That's the word sun athleo. It's the word we get athlete from. Notice we live in a culture as well of the CrossFit games, of running, of weightlifting, martial arts. It's all for individual glory. With Christ, though, as a Christian, there's no MVP. We're all a mess. Whoever came up with MVP needs to be shot, in my opinion, because there's no such thing as an MVP. Nobody does it on their own. Christianity is not a solo sport. You've got to do it together. And he says you contended. That's what the word strive is. You contended side by side. Paul uses that idea in 1 Timothy 6.12. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life of that which you are called and about which you have made the good confession. That's the idea of contending. You fight the fights that are worth fighting. And Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he goes in verse 7, he says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. What are you fighting for? What's important? Well, the Bible said it's the orphan, the widow, the addicted, the afflicted, the wounded, the poor, the oppressed. That's how we know we're Christians. Not because we meet here on a Sunday morning, which is important, but it's what we do out there, that we, we have a conviction, which is the backbone of belief. And so we've got unity, teachability, conviction. The, the fourth characteristic of a servant leader and a servant is sacrificial service. And Paul says this beautifully uh, when he says, Indeed, this is in chapter 3, verse 8. Listen to what it says, verse 8, 10, and 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered loss of all things, and I count them rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and that I might know him. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection by becoming like him and sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Wow. In Philippians 1.29, the passage we just read, listen to what he says. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. Wow. Oh my word, that is just not in our vocabulary. In Romans 8, verse 17, if you want to glory in Christ, you must learn to suffer with him. In 1 Peter 4.19, do you realize that's actually the key verse in 1 Peter? 1 Peter 4.19, for those who suffer according to the will of God or to commit their souls back to their faithful creator and continue to do good. That's the whole point of being a Christian, that we suffer well. Not suffer because we've made bad decisions, but suffer because of whose we are and what he wants to do in us and through us. Unity, being teachable, conviction, suffering. The, the, the next characteristic is humility. Look at he says in the passage, chapter 2, 3 and 4, in humility of mind, count others more significant than yourself. Let each one not only look to his own interests, but the interests of others. Paul was writing to a Roman colony and the Romans and the Greeks did not have a word for humility in their vocabulary. It was actually a word of shame. So being humble was actually a unique Christian word, by the way. In fact, we, there was a tablet that was found, the achievements of the divine Augustus Caesar. And he wrote 2,500 words that praises himself and celebrates 35 areas of his own accomplishments. It was found right there in Philippi. And he praises himself for all that he's done. It's interesting, in Ecclesiastes 2, 1 to 10, Solomon actually gives 12 fruitless indulgences that preoccupied his life. And 13 times in the Hebrew, it actually says, I made for myself, I built for myself, I drank for myself, I did for myself. And what was Solomon's conclusion? Meaningless, a vapor of no permanent value, a chasing after the wind. Well, listen to the day, our day and age. Brand yourself, display yourself, give yourself, prove yourself, achieve yourself. It's funny, Jesus comes along. What does he say? Deny yourself. In Mark 8, he says this, verse 34 onwards, and calling the crowd of these followers and disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does a man profit if he gains the whole world, but he loses his own soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory of the Father with his holy angels. So how do we fall or how do we get out of this your self-trap? One word. It's right here in the passage. Humility of mind. It's a continually giving ourselves every day. I, you see, the only difference between you and me probably, is that I realize how arrogant I can be, how dominant I can be, how controlling I can be. Just before I was married, uh, my, my uh, fiancé left me uh, the day before our wedding. That was my aha moment. And I went to get help, and people told me I wouldn't change. And without question, I was a strange, well, nothing's changed, but I was really strange back then. And 
I tried to get help, and they said, you'll never change. So I fell on the floor, and I said, God, if you help me do my grade 12, because I'd failed it twice, if you help me do my grade 12 and, and, and open my eyes, I will help people who are like me. And God opened my eyes. And what I realized is that I have to be broken every day. The Bible says in Isaiah 57, 15, I dwell in the most high place, the Lord says, but I will dwell with those who are humble, broken in heart and contrite. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and at the proper time he will lift you up. So we need to be, have unity, teachability, conviction, sacrificial suffering, and humility of mind. But this is a sixth one, and this is so key. A spiritually conditioned mindset. Four times he actually uses this word, a spiritually conditioned mindset, in the passage. Philippians 2, 2 to 5. Having the same mind, having the same love, being in one accord, having one mind. There it is again. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility of mind, there's the word again, count yourself more significant, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you among you not only look out to his own interests, but also the interests of others. And here it is again, verse 5, having the same mind among yourself of that of Christ Jesus. It is the Greek word phroneo, which means to have a conditioned mind. Paul uses it 23 times in his letters, and it's a critical word because it means to have conditioned by the how and to whom we look. In Colossians, it says, have your mind conditioned and set above where Christ is seated. And we find also, it's in Romans four times, Romans 8, where he says, the mind that is conditioned upon what I want and you want is death and separation. The mind that is conditioned on what the spirit wants is life. Everything comes from this. I become what I think. Every action starts right here. And if we decide we want to make life about us, it will be about us. What we build, what we have. Now, that woman that left me, by the way, she knocked on my door a year later and she said this to me. First of all, don't say a word, which was really nice right there and then because she took me on. She said, secondly, I'll go anywhere in the world with you. I'll never ask for a house to be built or a kitchen to be renovated. I don't care what we earn. We'll take care of widows, orphans, addicted, and afflicted. But this will be, he'll be my God too, not just yours. He'll be my children too, not just yours. And we will serve and sacrifice together. It just won't be your ministry. It'll be ours. Well, we were married three months later. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and that's the kind of woman I needed. And at 32 years later, she still believes that. Seven times we started from scratch because of the ministry that we believe God has called us to. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to build a house or renovate a kitchen. I always get into trouble for that. But here's the reality. I want to be stripped. We take nothing with us. But this, this, our soul, you'll give an account for. Not what we have, not what we own, but whose and who we are. So then how do we do this? Who was that ultimate servant? How do we become like him? Well, let's look at who, number two, we looked at the characteristics. Now let's look at who the ultimate servant was. Well, the three critical truths about Jesus as the ultimate servant. First thing is, 
He's the ultimate servant. Why? Because he gave up his rights. Philippians 2, 6 and 7. He was in the form of God, though in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now, it's interesting. We're not told what he emptied himself off because we love lists, but the reality is he was God. Jesus is and was God. Now, how do we know that? Well, in Isaiah 6, 9, for us, a child will be born. Unto us, a son will be given. Listen to Jesus' uh, titles. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting pa- pa- Father, Prince of Peace. Herod knew this. Because he- when Herod read Micah 5.2, when Jesus was born, he called some religious guys, to the wise men together. He said, could you tell me where he is? He looked at the scripture and knew that Jesus was God and the ruler of Israel. And he wanted to eliminate him. And it's interesting, the more we know the word, the more this, we realize that Jesus is God. In, even in Matthew one twenty seven quotes Isaiah 7, 6, and 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he'll be called what? Emmanuel. Which means what? God with us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And all things were made by him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What good is a savior who doesn't understand what we're going through? My son left the Lord when he was 10. I was pastor of a church. He said, when I see God, I see you. And I'm done with Christianity. So he walked. I resigned as a pastor. And the Lord allowed me to open up a counseling, coaching practice. Five weeks ago, at 28, he accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. Three reasons, he said. Number one, because the Holy Spirit drew me, and I realized I'm afraid of the end times. Number two, I watched your example, Dad, all these years. And I said, look, son, without question, I failed your first 10 years. I was authoritarian. Yeah, he said, but you never abused me, and I used it as an excuse. But I watched you and mom. You, you can't argue that you, be, you lived what you believed, and you were broken. And he said, the third reason is because I know I need a savior, and Jesus is the only way, and Jesus is God. Those are three reasons. He's 28 now. We're all recovering hypocrites, aren't we? And... What we find is that Jesus is God, as my son said. Interesting, in John 5, the religious leaders wanted to stone him. Do you know why? Because he made himself equal with God. In John 10, 33, they wanted to to stone him. Why? Again, because you, just a man, you're declaring yourself to be God. And interesting, Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 5 said this, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory which I had before you, with you before the world existed. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. Wow. God became flesh and dwelt among us. So that's the first thing we see why he's the ultimate servant, because he gave up those rights. How, how good are you and I about that? We're terrible. I can't believe this culture, how much people want their rights. But it's my right. No, it's not. Everything's a privilege. Everything's a gift. It can be taken off us at any time. And that's critical. 
Jesus was the ultimate servant who totally submitted himself to God's purposes. Though being the form of God, verse 6 and 7, did not kind equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. That word form is very important in verse 6 and 7 because it's the word morphe. Morphe. That means he's 100% God, 100% man. That, as, as uh, Vine says, it is a special characteristic of a form and feature of that person in terms of the intricate essence of who they are. Adam failed. Do you know that? He failed to represent God. But Jesus represented God's purpose, resembled God's character, reflected God's, char- uh, um, reflected God's glory, and realigned us back to his word. But he also ransomed himself for you and I. So what we find there, though he was in the f- uh, uh, human, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, the form of God, he took on the form of a servant. And then it says in verse 8, and being found in human form. Well, actually, that's not the same word. That's the word schema which means someone who shows and adapts to an inwardly, an outward essence, an outward character. So it's like what Hebrews says, Hebrews 2.14. Therefore, since Christ, since Jesus shared in their flesh and blood, because the children were in flesh and blood, he partook of the same things. So the schema is that he was able to adapt to being human, but he remained in the form of God. Does that make sense? We already know that he was sinless because it says in Hebrews 4, uh, 15 that though he was a high priest, he he suffered exactly like we did, yet without sin. Six times I find no fault with him. I find no fault with him. So we know that he he felt what we felt. He was hungry like we're hungry, etc. But get a hold of this, and this is so key. In the book of Matthew... Just in the garden, what did he say? Matthew 26, 39... Going a little further, he falls on his face and prays, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not I will, but you, yours be done. Notice he sensed what it meant and what was going to happen to him. He was going to suffer and die. He couldn't do it. You say, what, Craig? Jesus wanted to pack it in? Yeah. At least three times. You ever felt like you can't go on? Ever felt like you're done? Ever do something really stupid and sin because you're so fatigued, so overwhelmed? A little girl came to see me. She's 20 years old. Knocked on my door and says, "Uh, are you Craig? I said, yeah, well, I heard that you do counseling. My baby died in my arms over 20 days. And uh, they sent me home. And I don't know what to do. So she came in and we talked to her. And she said, I have no money. I said, I don't care. So just come in. Three, three sessions later, she accepts Christ. Then her boyfriend, can I bring my boyfriend? Sure. He accepts Christ. And now they're going to Jody Cross's church in, uh, in Barrie. That happens all the time. People coming in broken. And when I point to the Savior, and when I tell them what Jesus did, they often, the, the unsaved are easier to reach, I'll be honest with you. Less complicated, because they get it. They're broken, they're humble, they're traumatized, and they come in and they receive the gift of eternal life because Jesus, it's the only religion in the planet where God became flesh and suffered. Interesting, Jesus said in John 4, 34, my entire food is to do the will of him and to finish his work. We see in John 5:30, I've not come to seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 5, 36 
for as the Father works, so I work the very works that I'm doing because it is a witness about me and the Father who sent me. And in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And yet listen to what he says in John 10. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I will bring them in also. They will listen to my voice and they will be one flock and I will be the shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life and I, that I may take it up. Listen to this. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to raise it up again. That's why John could say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in Revelation 13, 8, it actually says, behold the Lamb of God who was slain but before the foundation of the world. That's the Savior we have. He's come for you and he came for me. Thanks be to God. And it was God's will to crush him on our behalf. And when Jesus died on the cross, First thing he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The last thing he says, it is finished. That's the perfect tense. When Jesus died on the cross, everything that he had accomplished to that point by taking our place, taking your place, taking my place, taking our sin, he was able to take it, and it has ramifications right up to this day. He died for you. He died for me. It is finished. It says in 1 Corinthians uh, 22, for all in, as all in Adam we all die, so in Christ we're all made alive. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6 teaches us, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, and God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us that we could be the righteousness of God. Thanks be to God. Is that an Amen. And that's what we need. And if you're here this morning and you're a mess, you're in great company. But you need Jesus. At the end of the day, you've got to bow your head, bow your heart, fall on your face, because I believe posture is everything, and say, Lord, be merciful to me. I need your help. I've lived for myself. I can no longer do it. And the third reason that Jesus is the ultimate servant is because he didn't exalt himself, but waited for the Father to exalt him. We see in this beautiful passage, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name of every name. So you don't just have a savior who died. If he had just died, he would have been a wonderful martyr. But he didn't just die. He was buried and rose again. And guess where he is right now? He's at the right hand of the father. He was exalted at the right hand of the Father, and he, and he has the name above every name, so that every, every, uh, that name, every knee will bow in heaven and earth, and every tongue will confess. And that was a promise, actually, from Isaiah 45, where uh, God actually cried out to Israel and to foreign nations as well. In Isaiah 45, 22 and 23, Turn to me, Shub, return back to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that will not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear an allegiance. And that's why in the past God spoke through the prophets, but now he's spoken through his son. 
And he calls out to us. And he calls out to you. And he's at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding. In 1 John, it actually says that we have a defender who intercedes for us. In Romans 8, it says, who will condemn you? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding right now for you. Craig, I can't carry on. The son is interceding for you. He's alive. Man, I just got goosebumps about that. Wow. He's alive. He's interceding with you. So what do I do, Craig? Colossians 3 tells us this. If you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on the things of this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Thanks be to God. So, in four minutes, how do I become a servant leader? What does the passage tell me? How do I become a servant leader? Well, first of all, get deeply vulnerable, get deeply connected. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, therefore, my beloved. And that word is an intimate, special, prized, and valuable relationship that is characterized by transparency and vulnerability. It's not the healthy that needs a doctor, Jesus said in Mark 5. It's the sick. You've got to get vulnerable. You've got to become open together. Wow. Now that's just hit home. How are you this morning, brother? (laughs) Good. Well, no, you just had an argument with your wife in the car. Are you kidding me? How are you this morning? (laughs) No. How about this? I remember I was speaking at a place once. They asked me, how are you this morning? I said, terrible. Absolutely terrible. I feel lousy. I feel like I even shouldn't be speaking this morning. Uh, (laughs) Instead of just saying, Craig, let's pray. And by the way, you better, I remember having a fight with Renee, my wife, and I was about to preach, and I go, I can't preach, I'm a hypocrite. She goes, people fight. She actually put me up against the fridge, <laughs> little redhead. She goes, people fight. You need to go preach the word and go tell them that we fought. Okay, so I told everybody, and I said, anybody had a fight this morning or th- things are failing in your marriage? Boy, the people put up their hand. Okay, we're good, so let's carry on. And we've got to get vulnerable, man. We're not vulnerable, are we? We're taught to be, we're taught to be strong. We, you know, we're taught to, as men, we're taught to get our hunt camps. That's probably why there's so many of them. <laughs> Where we go hide and, and we shoot moose, which is fine, but they don't argue back. We've, we've got to work through the issues and be vulnerable with one another. The church is not an academy for wealthy saints. It's a rehabilitation center for sinners. That's why God made the church, that people come together who are broken. Second, develop authentic obedience in secret. As you've always obeyed, so now, also in my presence, but how much more in my absence? 12, uh, chapter 2, verse 12. That's the word hupakuo. It's a word to come under the authority and to, to listen. And it's interesting, it means to obey. To obey. We're not good at obedience because we want our rights, but we have to obey. Jesus rewards what is done where? In secret. He sees who we are in secret. And so we need to be authentic in our marriages, authentic with our kids. And when we mess up, admit it and be authentic with one another. Number three, work through by working out what is real in your salvation. Chapter 2, verse 12c, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The word work there simply means to produce what has already been accomplished and started. That's all. 
to produce. In the Bible, you know, uh, we find there's three different parts to our salvation. Positional salvation, we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We've been justified and declared right. Then we have a future salvation, thanks be to God, glorification, where we'll be saved from the presence of sin and we'll be ultimately redeemed. However, between Jesus dying on the cross and between him returning, we have progressive salvation. That is, we're being freed from the power of sin, one from one glory, from one prayer, from one working it out to the next. And we do so under the authority and fear of the Lord. We need to progressively grow. And no one matures where? In isolation. That's why we need one another. In the scripture, it says that we're to do so more and more. In Second Peter, if you want a great chapter, Second Peter 1, 13 and so 2 Peter 1, 3 to 12 will tell us that. And so we are to, fourthly, be submissive and dependent. God is working in you. And it's interesting, in Philippians 1, verse 6, it says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. In chapter two thirteen, he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. You're not on your own. You're not on your own. Every day, by God's spirit, by God's word, we can come and say, Lord, I can't do this. And then God goes, watch me work. Because I'm going I'm to work in you and through you, and I'm going to change you. Number five, stop whining. Oh, my word. Chapter 2, verse 14, do everything without grumbling and disputing. So stop whining and stop trying to be right. Stop whining. Stop grumbling, murmuring. That word means the idea of a secret displeasure, not openly spoken, but we find someone else to complain about. I call that THT, Tim Horton's talk. We always find someone. We are whiners. Oh, my goodness. And you look at the book of Exodus, uh, 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 12 to 16, Numbers 12 to 15. They murmured and complained. Stop it. COVID brought that out in us, right? What was already there. We whine and complain, and then we want our rights. Do everything without disputing. That means unilateral control. It's my agenda and points what I want, and I want to prove everyone wrong. That's what the word means. But it's interesting. Humble advocacy, is. there's no problem in that. Humble inquiry, there's no problem in that. But when I'm trying to get my point across so I can prove everyone wrong, stop it. And it doesn't work. Nobody wants a whiner and nobody wants a gossip. So he says, so stop doing that. So what's the off? So stop whining, stop complaining, start shining. Number six, start shining. Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In Matthew 5, it says, let your light shine so that people could see your good works but bring glory to your Father in heaven. We, by the way, we need to let our light shine, though, without though, blinding people. We need to let it shine because people say, how come you're not miserable like the rest of us? Well, I want to be, to be honest, but I've come into the light, and I've been exposed, and I apologize. Ooh, people like that. That's what a light does. A light is honest in a crooked and depraved generation. A light doesn't do this. Yeah, we live in a crooked and depraved. No, a light goes, I'm crooked, I'm depraved, but thanks be to God he saved me. And I don't deserve this. That's a light because it's modeled for others. And then we see develop a firm knowledge of God's word, holding fast to the word of life so that Christ 
uh, that in the day of Christ I may be proud of you that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. We're all going to give an account for how we handle the word of God. Study to do your, your best to show yourself as approved, as, 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 as sifted, and as, um, as sifted as fire. You've gone under this incredible furnace. Always being able to handle the word of God, to cut it straight. To know that God's word, be in God's word, study God's word. Don't just read it, study it and hold fast to it and hold to it. And then finally, rejoice that we can have a gospel-centered life that sacrificially serves our Lord and others. Listen to how he ends this. Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice all with you. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Live a gospel-centered life, a sacrificially suffering as a servant leader with the attitude of joy. We study the characteristics of a servant leader. Christ is the ultimate servant leader. How to become a servant leader. Perhaps it's time for us to surrender to God so that we can live a gospel-centered life, sacrificially suffering as servant leaders in an attitude of joy. Does that need to be you this morning? May the Lord help us. Gracious fathers, we bow before you this morning. We want to live a gospel-centered life. And Father, as we come to the Lord's table as well, we want to be uh, humble servant leaders under you, Lord. Lord, we confess our inadequacies. We confess that we have failed you. We confess that we, f- we need you. And so, Lord, none of us in this room can be this, be a servant leader who has a gospel-centered life that suffered except for what we have in Christ. What do we have that we didn't receive? So why do we act like we never received it? We need you, Father. We need you every hour. And our one defense is your righteousness and that of your son. So Lord, change us that we may serve one another and that we could serve the lost in a way that models the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave up everything for us. May we do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.